0: This podcast episode was generously funded by two anonymous donors. If you would like to support the podcast in similar ways, please contact Hadley Kelly at hkelly at pbk.org. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa, I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. Since 2018, we've welcomed leading thinkers, visionaries, and artists to our podcast. These individuals have shaped our collective understanding of some of today's most pressing and consequential matters, in addition to sharing stories with us about their scholarly and personal journeys. Many of our guests are Phi Beta Kappa visiting scholars who travel the country to our Phi Beta Kappa chapters where they spend two days on campus and present free public lectures. We invite you to attend. For more information about visiting scholars lectures, please visit pbk.org. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Maya Jasanoff. Professor Jasanoff is the XD and Nancy Yang Professor and Coolidge Professor of History at Harvard University and is a historian of British Imperial and Global History. Her books, Edge of Empire, Liberty's Exiles, and The Dawn Watch have won numerous accolades, including the National Book Critics Circle Award, the Kundal Prize in History, the George Washington Book Prize, and the Wyndham Campbell Prize for nonfiction. Professor Jasanoff writes widely about history, literature, and world affairs for publications including The New Yorker and the New York Review of Books. And in 2021, she was chair of judges for the Booker Prize. Welcome, Professor.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Maya, we got a lot of important things to cover in the fields that you have written about, and I certainly want to ask you about that Booker Prize experience. But first, I want to spend a little time on your journey to where you have gotten. You grew up in a highly academic home in Ithaca, New York. Your father, Jay Jasanoff, is a distinguished linguistic scholar who was at Cornell at the time. Your mother, Sheila Senjasinov became science and technology scholar, although I note with some pride as a academic attorney myself that she has a JD from Harvard and had some experience practicing environmental law. They both wound up at Harvard, but were at Cornell when you grew up. And your brother Alan, obviously the underachiever in the family, is only at MIT. So what was it like growing up in such a high wattage academic family?
1: Well, when you're growing up, you have no idea what's Normal or aberrant about your family experience. I mean, one thing that people have often said about our family over the years is, oh, it must have been so interesting to be around the dinner table and listen to you guys. To which I'm like, well, I actually found it sort of annoying a lot of the time to be around the dinner table in the way that any kid sometimes finds it annoying when their parents are going on about whatever it is and this and that. But I do think that what I got from my upbringing was a very conversational home. I mean, that is a place where we did have conversation around the dinner table and we had dinner together every night in which there was real attention to literature and language. So I got all of that. But it was also a household in which we each did our own thing. And I remember very vividly this kind of dynamic where we would have dinner, we would have reading, and then we'd kind of go off into our own corners. And I think that that experience of just having lots of room that was comfortable room to read and think and mm-hmm. explore in my own mind was a quality that obviously was cultivated very young and that has sustained me all the way through the rest of my career.
0: In my experience, there are students who who grow into academics or professionals, and that's a direct line from what they thought they were going to be. So if I had told the 10-year-old version of you, you're going to be a professor of history, would you have said that sounds about right? Or you would have said, no, my parents are academics and that's not what I'm going to do?
1: I don't think I would have rejected it out of hand, but I'm also not sure that if you had given me a blank to fill in, that's what I would have written. In fact, I'm quite sure it's not what I would have written. In fact, I can tell you that the eight-year-old me really wanted to be an Egyptologist. It might have been the 10-year-old me who wanted to be an ornithologist at all events. Certainly from those answers you can glean, that the idea that I could spend my life pursuing a thing I was interested in Mm -hmm. was something that I was privileged enough to be encouraged to do. I mean, you know, it speaks obviously to our socioeconomic condition, but it also speaks to something about the priorities that my parents placed on us, or the priorities that my parents held up to us. The idea that you have to earn a lot of money or you have to get married at a certain age or, you know, those kinds of things. Those weren't the markers that were set out to us. So I think with that came, as with so many things, a degree of incredible freedom and privilege and also more subtle forms of restriction in the sense that by the time I got to college, I knew that I enjoyed things to do with reading and writing. I knew that I enjoyed being surrounded by others who liked things to do with reading and writing. And I knew that I had to support myself after graduating. But because of the milieu in which I was, the easiest way to fulfill all of those things was very clearly just to go to graduate school because I would have a stipend, I could keep on reading and writing and being surrounded by people who like to read and write and just move along like that. And I do think that had I had different sorts of examples before me, the possibilities of following these things that I'm genuinely and deeply and in a very, very long-term way interested in, but through other forms like writing outside the academy or doing journalism or something like that. It's possible that those would have been opportunities that I would have explored differently. And then I'll add finally that I definitely had a feeling by the time I was in high school and much better able to follow the dinner table conversations between my parents, that academia was a very fraught and difficult place. And I think that in my college years, I would have been much more likely to bridle against the idea that it's where I would end up than I would have when I was younger.
0: You may be familiar with a study that was done, this is a number of years ago, trying to come up with the best correlation or the best predictor of national merit scholars. It was a huge data set, as you can imagine. Turned out the single best predictor was students who had dinner with their families more than four nights a week. And that obviously also implicates lots of other socioeconomic factors. And I don't think this was exactly a peer-reviewed study that was ready for primetime publication. But that idea that the first seminar that you attended, if you will, is around the dinner table and people listening to you and taking you seriously. That turns out to be an important predictor of a certain kind of success and abilities in life. So when do you find yourself gravitating towards history?
1: Well, when I was an undergraduate in my freshman year, freshman fall, in fact, I took my first ever history class. And I'm sure that this is something that's common to most of your listeners and or their children, that in a lot of American high schools, you don't even run into a class that's called history until you get to the AP level. And that was certainly the case for me. Out of all of my 12 years of high school, I only ever had one class that was called history, and that was AP U.S. history. So I didn't really, frankly, have a clear sense of what the study of history even was other than learning a bunch of names and dates and this and that about the past. I then ended up getting a fellowship to go study at Cambridge. And I received in the mail a letter saying, you've been admitted and your supervisor is C.A. Bailey. And I had not heard of this person, but I came to learn that C.A. Bailey, Chris Bailey, was one of the preeminent historians of modern South Asia And by extension, and he was already moving in this direction at that point in his career, a pioneering historian of what we now call global history. I sort of defaulted into, or had the luck of the draw, into having this person be my supervisor, who, by virtue of his expertise in South Asia and his interest in global history, really ended up pointing the way to me to take up the kinds of topics which have interested me ever since, which is to say that I'm interested in how power and how people cross borders historically and how those kinds of configurations between power and people and place end up being aligned and shifting over time my other side of my family is from India. And I had been traveling to India on and off ever since childhood and been always quite curious about what I saw there. And my mother is from Calcutta, now Kolkata, which is full of street names and monuments and all kinds of things commemorating the British, which I always found completely weird and didn't really understand. So under the tutelage in a sense of Chris, I ended up actually learning about the history of the British Empire in India, which I hadn't learned about otherwise. So that was an incredibly important step in my trajectory.
0: In your own work, you have managed to straddle the lines of serious, significant, impactful scholarship, and also writing for what editors like to call the serious general reader, the New York Review of Books, the New York Times, the New Yorker, Who do you think of as your audience?
1: You know, increasingly, I think about my audiences as my students or my students 10, 20, 30 years out of graduation when they maybe have time and a little more inclination to read. Uh, But for me, teaching has been an incredible benefit to writing in the sense that I am very fortunate to be able to teach a lot of incredibly bright, curious people who maybe don't know a lot about a given subject, but are interested in learning about it and have interesting questions to ask about it or wish to have answers to things that are, you know, similar to the kinds of questions that animate me. So I think about my readers as people like that.
0: This whole idea of contributing to the public discussion has ancient roots, but in the American Academy, at least as far back as the early part of the 20th century with the origins of academic freedom doctrine, it is always talked about in terms of freedom for the classroom, for one's scholarship, and for external utterances, which are viewed to play a role in public conversation.
1: Exactly. And that's something that I've been pleased to see over really just the last few years, I think. I mean, this is where I do think that in a perverse way, the terrible political polarization that we've been seeing in recent years has also meant that there's actually a great interest in history coming in all sorts of ways. Unfortunately, some of it is what I would have to call unrigorous, but I think it has made a lot of my colleagues and peers aware that there's a real need for us to be able to explain the history of our nation and our world in ways that can be hugely important in the very classic sense that knowing about the history of your nation and your world is important to being a steward and a citizen. And also at the moment, it's actually frankly important in terms of combating various forms of misinformation and prejudice.
0: The whole idea of a self-governing people in a democratic society is premised on the idea that the citizenry will know enough of its own history and enough of its own narrative to begin to think about how do we chart forward and chart forward from where we have been and where we intersect with the values of our institutions. So I wanna ask you about one such intervention into the discussion of a broader issue, and that is your quite impactful op-ed in the New York Times after the death of Queen Elizabeth II about the monarchy. I just wanna share a little bit of it. You start a sentence that you can just feel the butt has to come at the end of it. You write, the queen embodied a profound, sincere commitment to her duties, And for her unflagging performance of them, she will be rightly mourned. She has been a fixture of stability, and her death in already turbulent times will send ripples of sadness around the world. And here it comes, (laughs) but we should not romanticize her era. And you go on to say such things as that the Queen helped obscure a bloody history of decolonization whose proportions and legacies have yet to be adequately acknowledged. There's more to this op-ed, and I encourage our readers to go Google it. Well, the firestorm followed thereafter. One of my favorites, uh, Ben Goldsmith, a financier in the UK and brother of a Tory peer, Zach Goldsmith, said the article was appalling and that he was so revolted by it, his words, that he was going to cancel his subscription to the New York Times. So first question is, were you surprised by the reaction that you got? And was it the reaction you intended?
1: Yeah, I was surprised. I think that it showed me something which has been becoming very clear over recent years and looking at the British political scene, which is that the politics of empire have become very central to Britain's own version of the culture wars and that it fills the role that, if you will, the history of slavery and racism has filled in some ways in the US. This is obviously a generalization. One sees more in recent years figures on the right of the British political spectrum weighing in on the goodness of the British Empire. One of the things that has become clearer and clearer over recent years, thanks in part to the release of many documents, some of which were deliberately obscured by the British state, it's become very clear that the, particularly the final decades of British imperial history in the mid-20th century were extremely bloody and contested years. I have always in my teaching sought to resist any sort of simplistic portrayal of good and bad in history. I find that to be almost antithetical to what historical study is about. So I encourage my students not to adopt those terms. And yet, we see, I think, a public discourse in which that has become more and more evident with people on the right, very determined to uphold what they see as the basic goodness of the British Empire. So my piece obviously touched this in a way that really is completely out of proportion with what any kind of thinking person might consider about The role of the monarchy or the role of Britain in the 20th century world. The actual substance of my piece, the facts of it are very well known to historians and are completely uncontroversial in and of themselves, except to people who are interested in looking for some sort of ginned up type of controversy.
0: I know one of the topics of your lectures as a visiting scholar for us at Phi Beta Kappa this year is the continuing legacy of the British Empire and its many interpretations. Can you tell us a little bit about how we see some of those legacies that remain in the UK itself or in the former colonized territories and you know in the sense that imperialism is still with us by its impact?
1: The very fact that we're sitting here speaking English is obviously one consequence of Britain's global power, the global predominance of soccer being another one. But one of the things that I constantly come back to in this regard is just to remind my students that as recently as 1945, there were maybe a third of the number of nation-states in the world as there are today. And something on the order of 50 out of around 200 nation states of the world of 2023 were once British colonies. Every single one of those nations, therefore, has had to greater or lesser degrees the influence of the English language, of English border drawing, of English, British economic needs, which meant that their industries or their infrastructure were developed in various ways that were influenced by British imperatives, the fact that the United States behaves in what others see as imperial ways is pretty indisputable. So I tend to think that British imperial history is of particular importance for Americans to study because it provided a uh, model sometimes honored in the breach of global power.
0: I did want to talk to you about your role as chair of judges for the 2021 Booker Prize, which describes itself as the leading literary award in the English-speaking world. Other judges that year included the extraordinary British actress Natasha McElroy, the Nigerian novelist and professor Chakozi Obioma, and the former archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, who is a poet, I believe. What was that process like? And what did you learn from doing that that surprised you?
1: So it's hard for me to talk about the process without immediately getting a vision in my mind of these books coming in boxes just about every week on my doorstep (laughs) with the huge kind of heft quite materially that they entailed. And I ended up, as did my fellow judges, working our way through. 160 books in about six months. So it was a pretty heavy reading load, for which I must say that I was grateful to be a historian, because one of the things that you learn as a graduate student in history is how to read a lot of books really fast and efficiently. So anyway, that was certainly a part of it. But the best part, really, was that I actually have never belonged to book clubs. I'm not even particularly involved in reading groups and seminars that are oriented around reading that take place in an academic setting. And the result of that is that I hadn't really had experiences of just sitting down with a fixed group of people who I don't otherwise have relationships with. and just talking about what we're reading. And so it's like belonging to the best book club in the world, because here we are reading all these things that are brand new, getting a great cross-section of the state of literature in English today. And each of us, of course, very committed readers, but coming from different disciplinary perspectives, different life perspectives. So that was by far the most rewarding thing.
0: So speaking of book clubs, Phi Beta Kappa, in a funny way, is one giant book club. Many of our local groups do, in fact, have book clubs, but our readers, and I like to think of key conversations as a way of helping them build their book lists and their libraries. Do you have a couple of recommendations for us in the broader field of globalization and empire and post-empire studies? I'm thinking really both those who have a fair amount of background who would like to be stretched and those for whom this is obviously a topic of interest. They've been with us today, but might not be an area they know a great deal about and would love to get up to speed.
1: So in global history, we have two kinds of books. There's the books that offer the huge survey, a little bit about everything, And out of those, I would certainly point readers to, if you want classic works, the works of Eric Hobsbawm, for example, the work of my own former MPhil advisor, Chris Bailey, the work of a historian called Jürgen Osterhammel, the work of the scholar Peter Frankopan. So there are those sorts of things. But there are also, and this is perhaps what I tend to gravitate toward more, books that look at strand in global interconnectivity in different ways. So, for example, Linda Colley's most recent book is about the writing of constitutions in different parts of the world, ranging from Pitcairn Island in the Pacific, taking in Japan and Scandinavia, of course, the United States, etc., and offers a whole new way of seeing the global exchange of ideas. We also have books that look at the global circulation of people in important ways. And my mind is kind of automatically here turning to literature, if it's fair even to do that, just to say we've been talking about prize winners. The most recent Nobel Prize winner, I think it's the most, no, most recent but one in English, Abdul Razak Gurna, for example, has written numerous novels about the sort of migrations in and out of Tanzania. Mm-hmm. I also want to highlight fiction as a great insight into global experiences. The work of a novelist like Amitav Ghosh has been incredibly important in highlighting the stories that underpin the different forms of labor and commercial extraction and circulation going on in the Indian Ocean world and beyond. The fiction of the Nobel Prize winner, Abdul Razak Gurna, also highlights circulation, movement in and out of East Africa.
0: When we envisioned the Visiting Scholars program now decades and decades ago, it was precisely designed to bring serious scholars into the broadest possible classroom, to be on campus and meet with individual students in classes and seminars, but also to do a public lecture. In many ways, your work perfectly exemplifies that in your scholarship, also in your teaching. And we're glad that you've been able to be part of our faculty at Phi Beta Kappa this year and to have you back as a member of Phi Beta Kappa, as a visiting scholar at Phi Beta Kappa. Thank you for that. And thank you for joining me today on Key Conversations.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: This podcast is produced by LWC. Coachin Toshiro is lead producer. Paulina Velasco is managing producer. This episode was mixed by Trent Lightburn. Hadley Kelly is the Phi Beta Kappa producer on the show. Our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. To learn more about the work of the Phi Beta Kappa Society and our Visiting Scholar program, please visit pbk.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time.